welcome back to Seafort. This is MCS 343, and this week we're going to be discussing weeks 9 and 10 of the class's readings. So we're going to be condensing the final uh, two episodes, or the final two lectures, into one single episode. And I'm doing this because originally we had these last two weeks of class in which we're, there were going to be four classes, and we were going to discuss privacy in the first one, and then kind of move into issues that were above and beyond the scope of the class as you were working on your final case studies. So instead, I'm going to be doing this in one uh, condensed lecture, and we're going to be starting off by discussing privacy and surveillance, and then going into these issues of uh, technology as media slash moral objects and machine ethics. Uh, and a brief, like a cursory overview of those topics, since like I said, they're above and beyond the scope of the course. But um, we're grounding our discussion of privacy in this reading uh, from the Media Ethics textbook by Roman and Littlefield, uh, by Patterson, Wilkins and, Wilkins and Painter, called Privacy, Looking for, this, for Solitude in the Global Village, which has a lot of great different ideas, uh, and we could have taken the whole week just discussing this and some other readings. There's also case studies that really deal with the way that privacy gets played out in our current understandings of media and technology. So that's how I'm going to be spending the first half of this uh, podcast. The second half really goes into kind of harder reading, some more difficult things. So of those, I would suggest you focus on the DePaul and Crows uh, article or chapter from 2014, Can Technology Embody Values? Uh, which really deals with values, uh, it deals with uh, what they call value-sensitive design. Uh, Latour is notoriously difficult to understand, and uh, the Pierre and Lopez is kind of like where we go next with these topics into an ethics for machines themselves. So let's get started. Uh, so when we so when we transition into talking about machine ethics, uh, technologies, media, and so on and so forth. We're really going to be thinking about these issues that are raised in the introductions and objectives of these two last two class sessions. So what special circumstances are raised when we think through technology as media and vice versa? How does technology impact our sense of what is moral or ethical in the world? This ties back to the privacy reading. In thinking through issues of surveillance by the Internet of Things, we can consider how our sense of privacy is impinged. We can also consider the ethical dimensions of technology by reading theorists like Latour. Again, if you're bored and up for a challenge. So by the end of this, uh, the other introduction to this course is uh, once we understand uh, technologies and media have a moral role to play in our world, what about other things? Robots and machines. Is this stretching it too far? We'll explore those ideas in the final week. And so by the end of these two weeks of our, this lecture and the readings that are, uh, it covers, we're going to understand the unique dilemmas posed by technologies know how technologies mediate our relationship with the world, discuss technologies as not ethically neutral but having ethical prescriptions for use and participation in a society, understand non-humans as moral actors, and think about the moral dimensions of machines. So let's start off with something concrete. And if you go into the reading uh, by uh, the privacy, looking for solitude in the global village reading, you get this great uh, kind of history of Gawker. And you're probably too young or don't remember Gawker because it was a while back, but it was this incredible website that kind of did news from a very gossipy point of view and frequently violated people's privacy, which was entertaining as heck, but raised a lot of ethical issues. 
So as you go through this, try to see if you can find some articles by Gawker uh, or maybe another history of Gawker. Sometimes I assign a video or show a video in class about Peter Thiel and the demise of Gawker after the Hulk Hogan controversy. So it goes on to talk about Helen Nissenbaum, uh, the article that we're reading. And Helen Nissenbaum, when it says she's one of the most foremost scholars on this subject, is somebody that we read an awful lot in media studies and technology studies. So uh, she argues that social media and many other forms of technology have erased the public-private dichotomy. Her sophisticated thesis is that privacy is neither a right to secrecy nor a right to control information, but rather a right that individuals have to control the appropriate flow of personal information in a variety of contexts. So this is a good way of starting off our discussion about what does it mean to have privacy and where do we get privacy, especially with a mediated society where we surrender some of that for participation as par for the course. So it's important to know there's a distinction between the legal definitions of privacy and the ethical dimensions of privacy. And the book or the reading that we have talks through the legal definitions of privacy include number one, intrusion on a person's seclusion or solitude, such as invading one's home or personal papers to get a story. Pause. This comes from the Warren and Brandis decision in 1895, which was a Supreme Court decision in which they decided privacy was the right to be let alone. And this uh, and uh, some parts of the Constitution are really where we get the grounding for a legal framework for a right to privacy, although there is no strict, uh, you know, condensed document that says this is your right to privacy. But this is where we get the legal definitions here in this reading, which are coming from other scholars. So number one, again, intrusion on a person's occlusion or solitude, violating their right to be let alone. Number two, public disclosure of embarrassing private facts, such as revealing someone's notorious past when it has no bearing on the person's present status. Number three, publicity that places a person in a false light, such as enhancing a subject's biography to sell additional books. Number four, misappropriation of a person's name or likeness for personal advantage, like using Hollywood megastar Julia Roberts' image to sell a product without their permission. All right, so these are some ways that we could violate someone's privacy from a legal standpoint. But one of the major problems of thinking through privacy, the way the chapter says, through the legal lens is there's a misleading connection between privacy and money. Oftentimes, you know, you see people talk about privacy being the new oil or data being the new oil. And so you think about who has it, who has the resources to protect their resources. Uh, people with financial means often have a lot at their disposal to protect their privacy or to deter others from violating their privacy. Back to the Gawker example, when Peter Thiel went after Gawker, uh, he did it on Hulk Hogan's behalf and funded those lawsuits because Hulk Hogan didn't have the money himself. But Peter Thiel had an axe to grind and lots of money to do that with. So anyway, back to what the book, uh, what the chapter says about this. Marketing, personnel, marketing personal information through social media and search engines is an example of reducing ethical thinking to a cost-benefit analysis lodged in the market. Philosophers assert that the commodification of private information erodes both the core of uh, erodes the core of both individual autonomy and authentic community. While the law may be a place to begin, it doesn't provide a satisfactory framework in which uh, is uh, to make ethical choices. So uh, we have this issue, right, of how do we make the right choice? 
And it boils down to more than just thinking about, well, what does it cost me to violate somebody's privacy? And, you know, can I get away with it? And what is it going to, uh, what's the benefit of it? We have to go beyond these kinds of market-based analyses in order to think about what is the, the right choice, the honest or the uh, ethical choice. And so there's a box on 137 that you should read. Definitely don't skip that. Uh, and it says, while at the bottom, it says, while much of the debate focuses on the right to privacy, an equally compelling argument must be made for the need to privacy, need for privacy. Privacy is not a, a luxury or even a, a gift of a benevolent government. It is a necessary component of democracy. And this is something that you can see in literature on privacy. Like if you're interested in working on papers on privacy in the future, uh, Igo's book, The Known Citizen, and also David Vincent's A History of Privacy, really talk about like the intimacy that people share and the necessity of having privacy in order to develop and uh, grow into fully full-fledged, um, well-developed democratic citizens, you know, who have made mistakes and grown and just... Uh, it's, it's difficult to explain, but it's like when you're, you know, when you're young and you want to make, you want to say something on the internet and you say something dumb, right? And you make that mistake and you realize that was a mistake. And then you get older and you know where you're coming from now. You know better than to say those sort of things or then, you know, you, you've experimented, you've had ideas and you've grown as a person. So this kind of testing out of things is very difficult when you don't have the privacy, when you're always... Um, uh, not just responsible, but like liable, right, for the things that are said, especially when it's all assigned to your real name. So the demise of privacy is, is something that people have talked about as uh, how uh, uh, one of the things that's necessary for a democratic society, but that we've been doing away with. So where was I in my notes? Um, when we get to the ethical dimensions of privacy, right? And so we've talked about the legal definitions of privacy. When we get to the ethical dimensions of privacy, you have the notion of privacy as a natural right. It's a very Kantian kind of com uh, conception of privacy as something that's intrinsic to the human individual. Uh, but the reading talks about how privacy is a contested commodity, right? Data is oil. Privacy is something that we can afford or that only certain people can afford. Right? It fits well with the 21st century lived experience at the individual level. The, the privacy is not an a, is, sorry that privacy is an a priori right that individuals can choose to trade away or to retain based on individual needs and desires. So it's very much within the framework of how we're used to thinking that privacy is this commodity that we buy and sell but not intrinsic to ourselves. Another great point that the book um, that the reading I keep wanting to say book, that the reading makes is this idea about how responsibility for keeping things private is shared. Individuals have to learn to when to share or withhold information and the community has to learn when to avert its eyes. And so here's a question for you. Like, uh, can we avert our eyes, right? And by that, I mean, like, you know, it's very difficult to, for companies to look the other way when they see your private data. When it comes to data mining, when it comes to scooping up everything that they can about consumers, about possible marketable, profitable, uh, you know, valuable resources like your personal data, 
can we trust the community, the business community, the public community to avert its eyes? Can we trust the government to avert its eyes about private information? Um, you know, probably not, but I'd like to see your response. So thinking through privacy philosophically prompted scholars to develop four different kinds of potential harms when privacy is invaded. So remember when we think about harms, we're thinking about like uh, from a utilitarian point of view, what creates the most pleasure or results in the least harm to others. So the information, the invasion of privacy uh, results in these different kinds of harms. Informational harm like identity theft, informational inequality, Remember what we said about inequality during our health comm week, um, such as governments and corporations amassing large amounts of data about individuals without their knowledge or consent. Informational injustice, for example, transferring data from your financial records to the local newspaper without appropriate contextual information. And encroachment on moral autonomy. This is the important one, right? The part about like being a democratic citizen, becoming a full-fledged individual in a democratic society. The encroachment on moral autonomy is the capacity to shape our own moral biographies, to reflect on our moral choices, to evaluate and identify with our own moral choices without the critical gaze and interference of others. This is hard, right? It's hard to really grow as a person when you feel that critical gaze all the time, especially when you're doing things through a mediated environment where you feel like it's always uh, forever on there. It's always forever on record. Privacy can be considered control over who has access to your various circles of intimacy. Invasion of privacy occurs when you have control over your own circle. When, sorry, invasion of privacy occurs when your control over your own circles of intimacy is wrestled from you. So I found that very compelling definition of privacy, but I'd be interested in hearing if you have other definitions of privacy. Uh, control over who has access to your various circles of intimacy is a notion that really resonates with what I've read in literature about privacy, especially the history of privacy, that book by David Vincent I mentioned earlier. The uh, reading also discusses uh, discretion, uh, right to know versus need to know versus want to know. And lastly, we get back into John Rawls and this theory of distributive justice. So if you remember what we read about the veil of ignorance, great. If you don't, it might be worth it to Google the Wikipedia on this or the SCP article on Rawls and think about what distributive justice means here. So uh, in, according to this reading that we have, uh, Rawls' theory of distributive justice takes the best from utilitarian theory by, while avoiding some of its problems. It begins with the premise that justice should be equated with fairness. In order to achieve fairness, Rawls suggests an exercise he calls the veil of ignorance. So this is a brief overview of that veil of ignorance in this reading. Um, before a community can make an ethical decision uh, affecting its members, it has to consider the options behind a veil of ignorance. Behind the veil, everyone starts out in an original position as equals. When people begin their deliberations behind such a veil, Rawls suggests two values emerge. So when we're thinking about everybody as, uh, from the blind position of you know equals uh, together and then we don't know who our decisions are going to affect, we're going to first act so that individual liberty is maximized, but also so that weaker parties will be protected. Using the concepts of right to know, need to know, discretion, and circles of intimacy, along with Rawls' conception of distributive justice, according to this reading, will provide you with the ethical tools to begin the work of balancing conflicting claims of privacy. 
These tools will enable you to better justify your choices, to make decisions systematically, and to understand what went wrong when mistakes occur. So I want to point out that, again, they're not required, but check into the other readings that happen after, uh, I mean, the other case studies that are after this reading uh, included in the PDF. The first one talks about issues of surveillance by drones, by reporters of public figures' homes, and, um, you know, which leads really nicely into the next set of readings. But first, uh, the question I have for you all after you've read this article is our moral obligations different depending on people's circumstances or their right to know, need to know, want to know, or are you a Kantian? And then also how would a virtue ethicist approach to approach the situation? Uh, is there a way to cultivate uh, well-being or eudaimonia, right? If we are uh, taking a virtue ethical approach to privacy. Uh, so think through that, think through those and now I'm going to transition into the second set of readings, uh, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, uh, but I want to say these were, again, above and beyond the scope of the course. So only read Latour if you're bored and ready for a challenge. Um, we have to consider media. So what do we mean? Why are we talking about technology as media? Why are we talking about moral objects and machine ethics? So we have to consider media to be somewhat synonymous with technology and whether or not that has a moral dimension. Definitions of, the, of how I'm talking about here can be found in Latour's use of the term technological mediation. But for me to go off on this for a minute, um, technological mediation, um, media as technology. So all media is relational in the sense that we are mediating our experience of the world through something, uh, whether that's language, whether that is a television, whether that is a telephone, uh, whether that's the glasses that are sitting on my face, right? They're, these things stand between us and the world. And so our experience of the world is always mediated through some uh, intervening element. And usually that's a technological element. You know, our experience of the environment is mediated through the built environment, through the buildings that surround us, through the comfortable chairs that we sit in, right? Through the headphones that you're using right now. These things are kind of uh, providing an in-between, uh, the direct experience of the world and the experience of the world that we actually have. So this is a very phenomenological point of view, but it does it de deals with the way that technology is always mediating our experience. And the roles that thing play in our moral relations. So um, these things are often thought of as neutral. Uh, they're often thought of as not having really any uh, moral dimension or character to themselves. But Latour in another reading talks about prescriptions as the moral and ethical dimensions of an artifact. And so he gets really to this issue of what do things do right morally by talking about the relationships that they kind of engender the kind of connections that are fostered through the use of certain specific technologies certain specific media and we see that in one quote from his uh reading here where he says uh technologies bombard human beings with the ceaseless offer of previously unheard of positions Engagements, suggestions, allowances, interdictions, habits, positions, alienations, prescriptions, calculations, and memories. Generalizing the notion of affordance, we could say that the quasi-subjects that we all become such thanks to the quasi-objects which populate our universe with minor ghostly beings similar to us, 
and whose programs of action we may or may not adopt. That's kind of complicated, right? But when we talk about this next sentence ties it all together. If the robe does not make the monk, wearing a frock makes us slightly more pious. And so we think about like the accoutrement, like the things that we put on, the stuff that we engage with. Uh, do you feel more professional when you put on a certain kind of clothing? Do you feel more athletic if you put on the right pair of shoes? Uh, not just to what we wear, right, but what we engage with. So how is it different to engage with um, like a doorbell versus a security alarm, right? How is it different to uh, cook from a microwave versus a very fancy stovetop grill, right? These things, uh, again, these quasi-objects change the way that we're subjectified, change the way that we experience the world. And there is these moral dimensions to it. So in another reading, he talks about the seatbelt as being a very prescribed kind of morality in which the directive, you shall be safe, becomes uh, embedded in this technological artifact, the seatbelt. So what Latour is getting at is this idea that um, there's not a means to an end, right? The utilitarian concept of like means to an end, that the only rational actors well, the Kantian idea that there's only rational actors are humans because, you know, they have sentience, they have uh, sapience, they have rationality. So they uh, are always a means to an So things are always a means to an end. But Latour here is talking about the ends of means, the ends of these means, because there is a relationship. There's always this relationality between us and the built world and the uh, technological world. So the main thing that you should focus on uh, if you're going to go through these readings is a DePaul and Crow's reading about value sense of design. Spend some time with it. Uh, think about the central outcome of their analysis at the end. The neutrality thesis does not hold and it is possible for technological artifacts to embody values. However, the va values that may be embodied in technological artifacts are of a specific kind, namely extrinsic final values. Values may be designed into technological artifacts and therefore value sensitive design is possible. Now they start off this reading really talking about an, a very familiar example, the gun, right? Do guns kill people or do people kill people? And this premise that the NRA and others promote really goes to this very American, very Western idea that technolo technology is morally neutral. Now it's weird because Technology is morally neutral, yet technological progress is always morally positive, and that we engage with technology in an instrumental way, which makes our future brighter, more glorious, more wonderful, whatever you want to call it. Now, they go through several positions in this article. They talk about how technological artifacts cannot embody moral values. Uh, that's one argument that some people make. Then they say that, well, we're going to differentiate moral values between intrinsic and extrinsic. Things that are intrinsic to the object, uh, like a knife's ability to cut, therefore makes it a good knife. If you read that appendix, you'll understand what they're saying about intrinsic values. Uh, technological artifacts cannot embody moral extrinsic values. And then uh, lastly, the design properties of technological artifacts cannot form the re uh, resultant base of moral extrinsic final values. Lula. Ooh, that one's a hard one to swallow. But basically, they go through the example of sea dikes and seat belts again, uh, or speed, speed bumps. I think the speed bumps are in here, which is another example Latour uses elsewhere. Uh, these are objects that are embedded with value. They have a specific outcome design. Therefore, 
And it's a good outcome. It's an idea that these things do things in the world that are morally desirable. Therefore, they have extrinsic final values embodied in them. So spend some time with this reading. It's difficult. Uh, I probably didn't make it very much clearer. Uh, but what are your thoughts after you go through this of the original example of guns as moral objects? If value sense of design is possible and that values can be designed into technological artifacts, then what does that mean for different kinds of guns? How can we design a moral gun or can we? High capacity magazines, that sort of thing. So I, uh, the last article really, again, is really on the uh, outskirts of what interests us. Uh, and the main thing is in Pierre and Lopez is to think about why uh, ethics for machines. And they cover this very early on in the reading. And this is because computational agents have become more sophisticated, more autonomous, acting groups, and foreign populations that include humans. We can think of bots. We can think of all kinds of non-human actors uh, that work as technological artifacts and actors that work as media, mediating our world. These agents are being developed in a variety of domains where complex issues of responsibility require more attention, especially in uh, situations of ethical choice. And then lastly, as their autonomy is increasing, the requirement is that they operate responsibly, ethically, and safely. It's a growing concern. So think through this. Uh, like skim through this article. Think through uh, examples of autonomous uh, or increasingly autonomous systems, whether these are drones, killer robots, uh, bots on the internet, uh, AI, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just really something to kind of inspire you to see how media ethics goes beyond professional practice and into all kinds of realms of our life. Media and technology surround us and uh, structure our world. They structure our experience in the world. And so the idea that morality is just a human concept kind of displaces the importance of designing moral things. Designing moral actors are moral elements in our world, things that can be used and engaged with morally uh, and ethically uh, from our end and, and even in the world. So if you designed a harvester, right, a, a certain kind of uh, or a reaper or some kind of agricultural product that didn't consider the native indigenous populations, the um, you know, bunnies and the bugs and the honeybees and things like that, right? And only was trying to produce food for humans, right? And then you automated it. And then you discover it destroys the entire ecosystem without people's help. Uh, but in a way that makes it impossible for humans to live. You've created an unethical artifact, an unethical actor that really uh, creates a problematic world for us to live in and that we can't persist in. So this is why uh, we have to think of media ethics beyond just like the stuff that we use in communications media and as a technological process or a technological uh, role of tech, range of technological actors in our world that really affect and structurate the world that we live in. So that's going to be all I really have um, for these last two weeks. I'm going to release this podcast for week nine uh once you hear it again remember that this is the final one um so don't look for one next week instead work on your case study uh try to think of examples scenarios dilemmas conundrums anything that really speaks to the material that we've covered in this course and as always email me if you have questions uh it's been a good quarter better than i expected especially with all that's been going on and I appreciate your participation and involvement. Take care.